Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. We are going to continue to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We'll begin reading in a few moments in verse 7. I don't know if we've been in 1 Peter for months or years, Dr. Mike, but uh, that's okay. It's okay. Uh, you can pick a little bit. I can pick back. Uh, but we'll, we, will, we will finish up 1 Peter. We'll adjust next week. We're going to take a, a week and think about uh, mothers, in particularly with a wonderful little story in the book of Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so that's what we're going to focus on for our Mother's Day week, and then we'll finish up over the several weeks after that, this series in 1 Peter. Uh, This passage of Scripture is fascinating and interesting. Peter begins the section by saying, the end of all things is at hand. We'll unpack that more in a moment, but as I was thinking about that phrase, I began thinking about, themes of apocalypse and the end times. I mean, when we think of the end of all things is at hand, I mean, think, man, when, when is the end of the world coming? Um, there was a song entitled, It's the End of the World as We Know It. Some of you will remember that. I've heard it a time or two. My wife could probably sing it uh, more than I can. She's a music connoisseur. I'm aware of some songs sometimes, but I looked it up. It was written in 1987. If that makes you feel old, I don't know if it makes you feel old or young or what it, what it does. But in that song, there are, uh, there's commentary about hurricanes and events that are, are going on in the world, and, and it feels like it's the end of the world. And, and to some degree, we've always felt like The things that surround us, catastrophic things, difficult things, painful things, uh, damaging things, things that are unrighteous or unjust, reflect this idea that the end of the world is coming. It seems like in the last 15 or 20 years, we've become enamored with the idea of apocalypse. I mean, you can look back at popular movies like 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow, and and the end of the world is going to come because of some kind of climate disaster or other ideas where it's not climate that's going to destroy the world and go into the comic book sphere and see that an alien or some kind of alien race is going to destroy the world, and the heroes are those that stop the world from being utterly destroyed and wiped out. Television's gone there too with uh, ideas of zombie apocalypses like with The Walking Dead and other kind of films and, and, and comic strips and things of that sort. But what does it mean that the end of the world is coming? It is the end of the world coming. And by the way, if we, if we think on those things too deeply and dwell on them too often, it's quite stressful. It's it's sometimes frightening for us to think what could happen in the next six months or six years. And of course, we all know that about 14 or 15 months ago, uh, the apocalypse that is the pandemic, COVID-19, entered into our language and entered into our way of life. And so we begin wondering, what is it that's going to change life as we know it? And what does that mean for human experience? Are are we going to end up in an apocalyptic type event in the future? I will tell you this. This sermon is not practically about the end times in that sense. 
It's actually pretty ironic what Peter does in this passage of Scripture. See, we as Christians are equally enamored with these kind of topics. I remember growing up in churches where the Bible study lessons went through the book of Revelation and tried to identify the images and the pictures of the book of Revelation with things that were going on in daily life today or in world experience. And so we sometimes get enamored with this. The Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, we connect to all these dots and we wonder what's next? When's Jesus coming back? And sometimes those types of things can be frightening and disconcerting because they're about the future and we're unsure. And so Peter, when he says... In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. It's kind of a clue, a cue for us to say, okay, well, maybe Peter's readers were interested in those sorts of topics as well. Wonder what he's going to say next. Well, let's read what he says next. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, build a bunker in the back of your house. Fallout shelter. Store up food. Become a doomsday prepper. Take your money out of the stock market. None of those things. Listen to what he writes. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, we might expect a call for extraordinary behavior, thinking something unusual would be demanded in light of the arrival of the end. Peter exhorted his readers, however, to pursue virtues that are a normal part of the New Testament experience. We are reminded of what Martin Luther said, what asked what he would do if the end would come today. He replied that he would plant a tree and pay his taxes. What Luther meant, of course, was that he lived every day in light of the end, and hence would do the appointed task of the day. One thing that I think will help us grasp Peter's point, and also Martin Luther's application of this very concept, is that when Peter writes, the end of all things at hand is at hand, that is a theological statement rather than a chronological statement. Peter is not writing to his readers to tell them that Jesus is going to return tomorrow. He wasn't trying to make some kind of statement about the, the, uh, the, the time of Jesus' return being instant or being immediate. What he was saying in a theological sense is we are now living in the last days. What does that mean theologically? Well, Jesus came to earth, walked on the planet earth, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead for our new life, and ascended to the Father in heaven. Theologically, that is the most important event that has taken place on planet earth. There's nothing more important than what Jesus did on the cross and what Jesus did through the resurrection. And from that point forward until Jesus returns, there's nothing that has to happen theologically for Jesus' return to take place. 
Uh, maybe if you want to get into some eschatological frameworks and plans and think about all the end times and, and, and dot all those I's and cross all those T's and figure out all the things about the future, we could come up with some events that might need to take place in human history before Jesus returns. But even that would be speculative. In terms of what God's plan and program is in the world, Jesus has died, has risen, has gone up into heaven, and that is the primary event in human history. He's in heaven now. The only thing that needs to happen for Jesus to return is for God to say to Jesus to return. So what Peter is saying is we should live every day in light of the fact that we're in the last days. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years. So those last days may go on for another 2,000 years. But I'll tell you this, those last days could end tomorrow. And what Peter says to us is that in light of living in the end, theologically speaking, we have some things we've got to do. We have a, a, an expectation of living in a Christ-centered way, Christ-centered in our service. And there are four specific actions that Peter gives us that we should do as followers of Jesus being ready for the end. And they're fascinating in their simplicity, but they're amazing in their intensity and their effect in the world around us. Here's the first thing he tells us to do. Pray readily. He says to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Clear-minded is that first word. And then... Sober-minded, it means that we're not to, to be under the control of anything else. Our, our minds are not to be influenced by intoxicating beverages or intoxicating experiences. And that goes beyond just alcohol or drugs. His point is this, and the, these two verbs go together. He's saying, be self-controlled, be ready for the sake of your prayers. God has convicted me lately about the extent of my prayer life the time of my prayer life, the intensity of my prayer life. And he's reminded me that there are things that I can't do in the world, things I can't fix and solve, but he is very capable of fixing and solving them. Hudson Taylor wrote it this way. He said, it is possible to move men through God by prayer alone. Some of us are looking around and seeing situations that appear impossible. Situations that are beyond our grasp, beyond our reach, we can't fix, we can't solve, we can't change. We look in our world, we look in our nation, we look at the chaos and the disruption and the fear and the, the disorientation in terms of the way we live lives, live our lives and, and the lack of normalcy, pandemics and sickness and ill health. And what is our tendency? Our tendency is to try to step into those situations Solve a problem, fix an issue, deal with something. And what Peter says we're to do is we're to pray. Because God is the one who is able to intervene in situations that are far beyond our control. So because we're living in the end days, Peter says, pray. In some sense, that seems like the most passive thing we as Christians can do. And yet, that's what he starts with. It's the primary thing that you and I as followers of Jesus can do because prayer admits our need. It admits our lack. It admits our inability. It acknowledges humbly that we are not and yet we're talking to the God who can and the God who is and the God who is able. 
And those two verbs are important in the concept of praying readily or praying uh, consistently because they indicate that we're not allowing other things to distract us and keep us from praying. Uh, For example, if you are... Uh, to, to use the language of alcohol or drunkenness, if you are not sober, you're not going to be able to think clearly to pray. Uh, I don't know that from personal experience, but I have shared the gospel with people who are inebriated. I've talked with people who are inebriated. I've interacted with them, and they are not rational. There, there isn't much sense made with that person who is under the control of some beverage or some, uh, some type of uh, drug. They're not able to think clearly. You understand what I'm talking about. So if you can't think clearly, you can't pray with any kind of rational, clear-headedness in talking to God. Say, well, okay, pastor, I'm glad you used that as an example because that's not my problem. I'm, I'm good. We're not, not trying to have my prayer life uh, after, after drinking a pint of something that controls me. But, but he didn't just say that we're to be sober-minded. He said we're to be self-controlled and clear-minded. Here's what we tend to do. Rather than uh, control our minds through some kind of beverage or drug, we control our minds by constantly feeding it with something else. If I'm always distracted by what's going on on my phone or always distracted by some kind of event around me or always distracted by something on a screen in front of me, then here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to be self-controlled enough to pause and to pray. To really pray, to pray deeply and readily as Peter is asking us to pray, commanding us to pray, to be able to do that means that we have to remove distractions. We have to turn off the phone or set it aside. We have to not be in a room where there's a lot of noise. We have to make sure we're quiet and we're alone. Sometimes God lets me wake up at night to pray. Because no one else is awake. There's no noise. There's no distraction. Sometimes I fight him and try to go back to sleep. Sometimes I fight my covers and try to go back to sleep. And sometimes God wants us to pray in those moments. Why? Because he wants us clear and focused Beloved, if there is anything you could do as a follower of Jesus, if there's one thing you could do as a follower of Jesus for the health and the growth and the ministry of Wilkesboro Baptist Church, I would tell you it's to pray. This is a really weird environment that we live in. Some of these next two things that Peter says are going to really shake us a little bit in terms of the COVID environment that we live in where we're in masks and we're distanced and, and, and we're, we're, you know, we're, we're hesitant to be around people with food and, and some of these things we're going to talk about in a minute. And some of you are concerned and, and you're not sure what to do and how to get plugged back into church life and into normal life. And I would say those are tensions we should wrestle with, we will wrestle with. But if you are wondering what you should do when you uh, finish listening to this message, if there's one thing you can do, you can pray. There's not a believer I know that is not capable of pausing and praying and talking to God. And I'll be honest with you, I think in some ways that may be the most important thing that we can possibly do. Pray readily. Then he tells us to love earnestly. That's our memory verse. Above all. Did you catch that phrase? Above all. Above all, love earnestly. You know, we at the church, we can offer quality music. We try to do that. 
with our praise teams. We do our best to make sure that I'm clear when I preach, and I'll unpack that maybe a little bit more in a moment. We do our best to try to offer something that's safe and, and healthy and right for our children's ministry with our programming on Wednesday nights. And I'll be honest with you, not everything we do is exactly right. And we might change some things if we really could sit down and look at some different things. And we're thinking about all that this means for reopening. But, but we can do all of those things perfectly right and perfectly well. We can preach good sermons. We can sing good music. But you know what? If we don't love, not much of it matters. Do you get that? You understand that, that if you're here, fantastic. But if you don't love, what does it mean? That song that, that my wife sang just before I preached, Jesus said to his followers in John 17, he prayed for them, John 13, and then in John 17, he echoed it. He said, we will be known by our love. We will be known by our togetherness and by our unity. You realize that if what we do and how we act is not overwhelmed and permeated by our love for Jesus and love for one another, not a lot of it matters. Above all else, love earnestly. Rather, keep loving earnestly. It's a qualification. It means that it needs to be intentional. It requires effort. It requires intentionality for us to love earnestly. And why do we do that? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, now Peter's not saying that love is somehow atoning. Not in the sense of our love for someone else. He's not making an argument that when you love somebody, it covers their sins. It it forgives them of their sins. Only Jesus' love can atone and cover our sins. And, And he's also not saying that when we love someone rightly, we overlook their sins. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when we love, our love for someone else uh, is willing to, to kind of cover a sin in the sense that we don't let that sin dominate the relationship. We don't let that sin dictate how we're going to act and behave and what we're going to think about things. I think Peter is picking up from a proverb, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, where he writes... Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. You know what happens. You've been in in these kind of situations. You acted terrible. You were ugly and you were mean. And some spouse or some parent or some neighbor or some child looked at you and said, You know what? You have acted like a jerk, but I love you. And I forgive you. And you know what that does? If you're still in a bad attitude, it just makes you mad. But then you stop and you think about it and you're like, man, that's grace. That's, that's good. And it's, it kind of stops things in its tracks. You know where we get ourselves in trouble? We get in our, ourselves in trouble in the church and in relationships when we uh, allow all of our relationships to be dictated by our behavior and the behavior of someone else. Meaning that when someone wrongs me, man, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to fight back. When, when someone crosses me in a way that they shouldn't, I'm going to let them know it. Because they need to know it. And I'm, I'm, listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a captain of justice. And I expect someone to treat me right. I'm going to treat you right. But if you don't treat me right, blessed, I'm going to let you know that you didn't treat me right. And, and what do we do? We let our relationships be dictated by our sense of right and wrong. Well, I'm glad that Jesus doesn't treat us that way. 
I'm glad he doesn't uh, evaluate my relationship with him based on every time when I cross right and wrong and I disobey. Certainly my fellowship with him is affected by my sin, but he's not up in heaven pointing out every little wrong that I've done and, and saying, you've got to do this to earn my favor back. You know what he does? He loves. He loves. I've been so disappointed throughout my experience in Christian life, Baptist churches all too often, where little things become big problems in churches because someone isn't willing to say, I love you more than I love being right about this situation. And you know what? If we as followers of Jesus as a church, if we would operate with this characteristic that you know what? I may not agree with so-and-so. They may not agree with me. We may be on different sides of this argument and this issue. But you know what? My love for them and their love for me and Jesus' love for us is more important than our disagreement in this issue. You know what? I'm going to love. That's what covers a multitude of sins. The reason why loving churches are churches that are affecting people in the world is because they're not being divided by all kinds of little things. They're letting love dictate and guide their behavior. And Peter says that we are to love earnestly. Why don't we do this? Jerry Bridges asked that question in his book, The Joy of Fearing God. He wrote, how can we miss it? How can we seem to focus on everything else but love? He says, I think the answer is that love is costly. To forgive in love costs us our sense of justice. To serve in love costs us our time. To share in love costs us money. Every act of love costs us in some way, just as it costs God to love us. But we are to live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us at a great cost to himself. We're to pray readily. For to be ready for the end times, for to be ready for the last days, for living in the last days. Pray readily. We're to love earnestly. Thirdly, we are to show hospitality cheerfully. Catch this verse, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality in the first century Greco-Roman culture was a tremendously important value. The inns that were in existence, think a hotel or a motel, they were not places of great reputation. In many cases, they were places where wickedness and evil occurred, where, where if you stayed there, it might be potentially dangerous. So in the ancient world, hospitality was a tremendous value. You can see this all throughout the Old Testament. When someone would travel, where would they stay? Well, they would stay, you know, in the wilderness if that's where they were. But if they made it to a township, where did they stay? They stayed in someone's home. Someone opened their home and gave them a place to stay for the night. They made sure that they were not, hospitality was a, it was a tremendous value. God expected it of the Hebrew people in the Old Testament. And Peter picks up on that very theme and he says, show hospitality without grumbling. So in a real sense, what he's saying is, open your homes to people. When Christians or non-Christians are traveling and they need a place to stay, you let your place be the place that they stay. That's what Christian hospitality is in this particular instance. Now, this really shakes us a little bit, okay? Because many of us treat our homes like our castles. I'm just going to be quite honest with you. That's the way I think about my house. 
I'm naturally introverted. I would much rather sit down in a room with a book than I would invite a whole lot of people into my space. That's just me. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm admitting some things here. I'm being, a, I'm, I'm being transparent with you as a congregation. That, that's me. And so it, it really strikes at me sometimes to, to say, okay, I've got to open my house up. I've got to clean before people come over and clean after people leave. And we've got to cook and we've got to do all this kind of stuff. And is there ever a convenient time for that to happen? And during the week, it's not convenient because we have school. On the weekend, it's not convenient because my biggest part of my a week is the weekend and getting ready for the weekend on Saturday and finishing the weekend on Sunday. And so in, in my view, for me personally, this is, this is a really tough one. And, and then you throw into the reality that we live, or live in the world of a pandemic. I mean, how many people have you had over to your house since last March? I'm not necessarily saying you should or shouldn't. I'm saying that, that this, this expectation meets the real world, right? It, it's one of those tension points. And Peter says we're to show hospitality without grumbling. Why did he say without grumbling? Well, because if you're going to invite someone into your home, they're going to break your stuff. They're going to mess up your carpets. They're going to eat your food. They're not going to say thank you. They're gonna, I mean, it's just going to happen. That's what hospitality, that's what happens with hospitality. But I will tell you this, Peter didn't qualify this command. He didn't say, unless you're in the 21st century living in a pandemic. He said, show hospitality without grumbling. So we have to do something with this. We have to apply it in some way in our lives. Let me give you a picture of how hospitality was shown to me. I traveled about 20 years ago to South Africa to preach in several churches uh, doing some revivals. And I stayed in people's homes. In one of the villages I stayed in, I stayed in the best home in the village. And it wasn't really a village. It was more like a shack town. And the house I stayed in did not have uh, any kind of modern conveniences. There wasn't running water. There, were, there was not toiletries inside. There was not electricity. I mean, it, there was a lot that this house didn't have. But it did have a room with a bed. And the family that allowed me to stay with them were unbelievers. But they still, because they had the best house in the village, let the traveling minister stay in their house, sleep in their bed, use their water, and eat the best food that they had. And they offered all that to someone that they had no idea who I was. Come from several thousand miles away, on the other side of the world, I came to share with them the good news, and they opened their house to me. That's hospitality. And folks, we as believers ought to be willing and able to do that. And my wife is a much greater host than I am. She loves having people over to our house. And, and, I, and as I've admitted, it's a tension point for me, but we're to show hospitality without grumbling. I'll admit, this was, God convicted me some with this. This week in, 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 in preparing this sermon, what does that look like in our daily experience? How do we show hospitality? Well, how about this? If you've got a kitchen and you can make a meal, why can't you make food for people? Some of you do that. We, we always, I mean, we're great at doing that in, in catastrophic or difficult or grief-oriented situations, right? I love our church for making meals for those who are going through times of grief. But why do we have to wait for a time of grief to bake cookies or bake a casserole for somebody in need? We don't have to. We can do that now. That's one way we can show hospitality. Why can't you have people over to your house? Now, I, I'm not going to try to get into the vaccinated, not vaccinated thing. But if you're vaccinated and you invite people over to your house that are vaccinated, I think it, it's sort of safe. 
I mean, right? I mean, I'm not trying to tell you what to do with your life other than Peter says we're to show hospitality, so we've got to find ways to show hospitality. This really hits home in Rosaria Butterfield's book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Here's the way she puts it. She says that Christian hospitality is to turn strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. Now, the way she practices this in her life will really bother some of us. It really does. I mean, it is radical hospitality. Basically, her house is open for anybody in her community any day of the week. She has children. She has foster children. She makes more food than she knows her family's going to eat. On a normal night, they have 10 to 12 people that are eating a meal with them that are not a part of their immediate family. I mean, it's some real stuff. Do we need to go that route? Maybe we do. But I will say this. We as followers of Jesus, even if we don't go to that particular vision of Christian hospitality, it's time for us as followers of Jesus to not act in fear and in worry and in and, and saying, okay, I can't be around people anymore. It's time for us to figure out a way to show love and mercy and compassion to people in our communities and in our neighborhoods. Even if it doesn't mean inviting them over, maybe it means taking them a meal. Maybe it means serving somebody. But folks, Christian hospitality is how we show love outside of the body of Christ. I know I'm meddling. But the Bible says it. So we've got to show hospitality without grumbling. Here's the final action that Peter gives to us as followers of Jesus. To be ready for the end. He says we're to serve gracefully. Notice what he writes. Verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. The word gift in the New Testament, in this instance and in the other places that spiritual gifts are discussed... Is the word charis, it comes from the root grace. It is a gift, it's undeserved. Essentially what it means is that when you became a follower of Jesus, God gave you a spiritual gift. He may have taken a natural ability that you had and he may have uh, brought it under his grace and his mercy and made it into some kind of supernatural ministry like hospitality, by the way, and mercy, something like that. He may have taken something that's natural for you, more normal for you, your bent, your nature, and he may have basically made it holy because he brought you in his family and he redeemed you, and he wants to use that in a special way, in a unique way, in a way that ministers to those around you, whatever that is. I know some of you in this church, your gift is a gift of encouragement, and God has used you mightily to write notes and to pray prayers, and to encourage people. And he has taken that natural tendency in your life and turned it into a supernatural gifting. Some of you have a natural ability to sing a song. That's fantastic. Many unbelievers have natural abilities to sing songs. You know what happens when God takes a natural ability and he saves it and he redeems it? He does what he does with our praise teams when they come together and lead us in worship. It's a supernatural gift. It's a spiritual thing. And what God wants us to do is use that gift not for us, Because a gift's not for us. A gift is for his glory and for the benefit of others. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been gifted. You get that? God has given you a spiritual gift. And we don't have time to unpack a whole sermon on spiritual gifts. There are several other places in the New Testament that list those gifts. You might ask the question, what are those gifts and how do I know if I have them or which ones I have? None of those gift lists in the New Testament are intended to be exhaustive. Meaning that I don't think the New Testament even tells us all the gifts that are available to those of us that are followers of Jesus. 
What I do think it means is that we're to serve others with whatever gift he's given us. If you've got the gift of generosity, it's for the benefit of others. If you've got the gift of ministering in someone's name or to someone through hospitality or baking a pie or whatever it might be, you're to do so for the benefit of other people. Notice how Peter qualifies it in verse 11. He says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What's the purpose? The purpose is that however God's gifted you, it's to give him glory and praise. He, di- he dis- distinguishes the speaking gifts from the serving gifts. But in both senses, the gift came from God. And in both senses, the gift is for the body of believers for the glory of God. Whether it's me as a speaker or whether it's you as someone who would serve with your hands and feet. And both are, are given uh, strength and empowered by God. I, I take this really seriously. And one who speaks, who speaks the oracles of God. Uh, this is burdensome for me in, a stu- in study and in preparation. When I stand before you, I don't stand before you speaking my opinions. I, I won't say I've never spoken an opinion from the pulpit. I have, and it's gotten me in trouble a time or two. But I, my point is, I speak for God. At least that's what I'm supposed to do. So how do I make sure I speak for God? Well, I've got to make sure I know what God's Word says. And so I spend time in study. And many of you are faithful. I've got a prayer team that I send an email to weekly. Y'all pray for me. And, and you do pray regularly. And you lift me up and ask God to help me give insights. And I can tell a difference. Because it's, I'm responsible for saying what God says. It makes a big deal. But not just me. All believers are responsible to serve under God's strength. How in the world do you show hospitality in a pandemic? Well, you need God's strength to do that. How in the world do you minister to children during a pandemic in our children's ministry? It's hard. I've had some wonderful conversations with Miss Danielle, our children's minister. And folks, I'm going to tell you something. We've been affected psychologically, but, but uh, most of us are not kids in a classroom. We have to sit with a mask on, six feet away from their friends all day long. This, this last year and somewhat time has been really tough on some of our little ones. And when they come on Wednesday night, it's like, a, it's like a, a time where they can just take a breath and they can be kids and they have adults that love them and, and minister to them there in the, in, the, in the Wednesday night environment. And how do you do that? It's hard on our adults, hard on our kids. How do you do that? You strengthen by God. That's what Peter says, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And what's the purpose for that? In order that in everything that we do, that Christ may be glorified. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If we really think that the end of the world is coming, that is a little bit frightening. How's that going to turn out? When's Jesus coming back? Are we going to live through the rapture? Or are we going to be taken up before the rapture? There's questions that we could ask as... As, uh, as a church, questions that have been asked for ages by the church. What does all that mean? And that gives us some pause and it gives us some fear and it gives us some worry. And if we pay too much attention to all the apocalyptic visions of what may happen and what might happen down the road with climates and with all of those things, it might cause us to be afraid. But I want to tell you, Peter doesn't come at this subject from the perspective of fear. He comes at this perspective with the glory of hope. Notice how he writes this. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. What does that mean? 
It means it doesn't matter how the end of the world comes about. We're on the side of the one who wins. You realize that? No matter what we experience, no matter what happens in our daily lives, we're on the side of the one who is worthy and who is glorious. When he comes back, we're going to share in that glory because he's the one who reigns and he's the one who rules. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? Are you ready for the end? Are you living like you should be? Follower of Jesus, let me speak very clearly to you. This message is intensely practical. Peter says to us that we're to pray readily, we're to show hospitality cheerfully, we're to love earnestly, and we are to serve gracefully. If you're not doing that, you're not obeying Scripture. I would ask you, I would commend you to do all of these things, but if there's one you're struggling with, pick one of these and talk to God about it and find a way to serve. Now, for some others of you, I think I'm talking to some of you. Are you ready, really ready for Jesus to return? The last several weeks, we've had several of our young ones put their faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior. They've confessed their sin, they've believed on Jesus, and we're going to get an opportunity in the coming weeks to baptize them. But some of you may be listening, may be watching on Facebook or YouTube, you may be in the room, and you've not trusted Jesus to be your Savior. The most important thing that you could do to be ready for God's return through Jesus Christ is to make sure that your sins are forgiven and you're in a personal relationship with the living God. I would beg of you to put your faith and trust in Jesus. I think I'm speaking to somebody who's five, somebody who's six, you're watching at home, you've been watching for a while with your parents, and, and God's been speaking at your heart. I want you to talk to your parents and tell them you'd like to put your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe you're a teenager or maybe you're a young adult, or maybe you're an older adult, and you're not settled about your salvation. We've got a number on the screen that you can text, and you can let us know, hey, here's what's going on in my life. I'm not sure about my soul. I'm not sure about my salvation. But I want to tell you how you can put your faith in Jesus and make sure you're ready for Jesus' return. You can confess your sin, admit that you're a sinner, believe on Jesus, commit your life to following Him. And you know what He'll do? He'll forgive you, and He'll redeem you. He'll draw you into His family. Be ready to meet the Lord. I'm going to ask you if you would stand with me as we close out this worship service. I'm going to ask you to take to heart what Peter's told us in terms of applying his word in our lives, God's word in our lives, and go out and live as if you're ready for Jesus to come back. Heavenly Father, pray in this moment for that child who's watching on Facebook. I pray in this moment for that family that's watching on YouTube. I pray in this moment for that family who's listening on the radio. Lord, some that are listening, some that are watching are not ready for you to return because they've not been forgiven and redeemed. And I pray, Lord, in this moment that you would open their hearts to the gospel, that you would do what only you can do, which is convict and save. And I pray, Lord, for their salvation. Pray, Lord, that you'd move in their hearts like you've moved in the hearts of the little ones the last several weeks in the life of our church. Lord God, I also pray for us that are believers. Help us to live lives that act like we're ready for your return. Not in fear, not in worry, not in hoarding, not in hiding. But Lord God, help us to live in a way that expresses your love and your grace and your mercy to people around us. By praying readily, by loving earnestly, by showing hospitality cheerfully. And Lord God, by serving gracefully. 
Make us your people that look like your people, that look like you in the world around us. I know without a doubt that's what our world needs. They need Christians looking and acting like this so they can see there's a God who's real and there's a God who changes lives. And I pray, Lord God, that we as your church, this church, Wilkesboro Baptist Church, would live this way in our communities, in our neighborhoods, and in our world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 